0: You're listening to Threads Radio, my name's Luke Fraser, and this is The Tonic. I love the opening to that in particular. That's Fanta's Variation for Voices from earlier this year, a collaboration of sorts between Italian composer and modular synthwiz Caterina Barbieri and US composer Evelyn Saylor. Caterina Barbieri achieved breakout success with her debut album Patterns of Consciousness back in 2017, which was soon followed up by 2019's critically lauded Ecstatic Computation. Whilst she said that her music, quote, explores the psychophysical effects of repetition and pattern by investigating the polyphonic and polyrhythmic potential of sequences to draw severe, complex geometries in time and space, a big part of her success, I think, is down to how her music communicates emotional states via machines and how powerfully it mediates between them. Easier said than done, I think, when it comes to electronic music. Evelyn Saylor, meanwhile, is a composer and performer from NYC, currently based in Berlin. She's involved in writing mainly electronic music as well, I think, for concert, theatre, dance, and film. And she recently collaborated with Holly Herndon on both her album Proto and the accompanying tour. Anyhow, the track that seemed to stand out for people from Caterina Barbieri's Ecstatic Computation was the Heavy weather Fantas a powerfully driven and finely honed modular synth workout, and Julie there is now an album of variations, which is in effect curated by her. Some of the pieces could definitely be considered remixes in the more conventional sense, but the more successful tracks on the album, in my view, by Carly Malone and Carlyse Coverdale in particular, are much more along the lines of recompositions, using the material of the original as a jumping off point for highly varied approaches. And this vocal version that opens the album and which is sung by Evelyn Saylor herself along with Lyra Pramuk, Annie Gerild and Stein Janvin is somewhere in the middle perhaps, if that's not too much of a backhanded compliment. Anyhow I'm definitely a bit of a sucker for those weaving, pointillistic cappella vocal textures. Always great to hear that type of thing. The album is Fanta's Variations. As mentioned it was released earlier this year on Editions Mago.
1: Qashadir eyvadi betsyar qashadir eyvadi Qashadir eyvadi betsyar qashadir bet eyvadi betsan ordan chiqman burkan san ordan chiqman burkan Minchia la blaringo, cia mai a the the hey, it's the hey, This zierkoroso not mit
0: I came back to those pieces recently after quite a long time and they just swept me up all over again. So that was Luciano Berrio and most of the folk songs from 1964. They're amongst his better known works, if not exactly amongst his most radical. After all, he was a big player within mid-century serialism and a real innovator in terms of electronic music, him perhaps most of all in terms of the Darmstadt school of composers of the likes of Stockhausen, Boulez, and Luigi Nono. And he also played a key role in opening up the toy box of extended instrumental techniques with his solo instrumental sequences. But the folk songs are, well for me at least, amongst the best of his, written for his then-wife, the iconic Cathy Barbarian, as something of a showcase for her incredible stylistic range. They take us on a miniature tour around the US, Europe, and the Middle East, without the need to provide a fully representative view of any particular country or region. And half of the pieces are not even strictly folk songs anyway. La Donna Ideale and Ballo that you heard in the middle were written by Berrio himself in 1947 and the wistful Black is the Colour that opens the set was written by the Kentucky folk singer and composer John Jacob Niles around the time of World War I. There is a traditional tune for that, but apparently Niles' father thought it was downright terrible, so he wrote himself a new one, ending in what he called a nice modal manner. Yusin Yelav, which followed that tune, describes the rising of the moon and originates from Armenia, the country of Cathy Barbarian's parents. La Donna Ideale stems from an old Genoese dialect poem, The Ideal Woman, that describes how if you find a woman at once well-born, well-mannered, well-formed, and with a good dowry, well, don't let her get away. And the poem that Ballo, or The Ball, is based upon says something along the lines that the wisest of men lose their heads over love, but love resists everything else. After that, Motetto di Tristora comes from Sardinia, and apostrophizes the nightingale. How you resemble me as I weep for my lover. When they bury me, sing me this song. Le Fioleur, meanwhile, can be found in the folk song collection, Chance d'Auvergne and is set in the Occitan language, portraying a girl at her spinning wheel who sings about exchanging kisses with a shepherd. And the closer, the Azerbaijan love song, was discovered by Kathy Barbarian on an old 78 record from the Azerbaijan Soviet Socialist Republic and sung in Azerbaijani, except for one verse in Russian, which a Russian-speaking friend apparently told her compared love to a stove. Fiery, perhaps? Anyway apparently she sang by rote the sounds she transcribed from the record without actually understanding any of the words. And the recording you heard there, pretty great in my view featured Dawn Upshaw along with Leova on viola, Bridget Kibbe, harp, Eric Poland, percussion, Eric Friedlander, cello, Gordon Gottlieb, percussion, Tara Helen O'Connor on flute, and Todd Palmer on clarinet. And the album it's taken from, College of Air, Barrio Folk Songs, was released on Deutsch Gramophone in 2005. discovered those recently they are the overlays transparent opaque you heard numbers 2 4 6 7 1 and 3 there written in 2013 by Catherine lamb she's an american composer and violist who studied with the spectral composers james tenney and michael pizarro and spectralism being a method of structuring music according to the natural acoustic properties or harmonic spectra of sound, and a lot of her works also explore the use of just intonation. They also tend to have a quiet, unadorned quality. She said that she follows the philosophy that the most intense sound is not the most intensive. I don't agree, she said, with those who believe that sounds need to be pushed in order to be physical, particularly when working with particular tonal colorations and shadings. The more the tones are played in a plain and relaxed manner with room to blossom, the more expressive and generative they might become. Now I'm not sure as to the exact compositional process at work here, but I think it's partly scored and partly indeterminate, with the fixed part being the forms of the movements and the open-ended parts being the so-called overlays. In any case, Catherine Lamb has referred to it as her attempt to describe the perceptual roles between musicians who are activating interactions in a harmonic space, as though to place individual crystals one by one amongst the musicians and to have them find their place on vibrancy or shadow due to the angle in which they are seeing the form. Which, to be fair, all sounds a lot more intriguing than your average night's work in the orchestra pit. So, my hunch is that the types or degree of certain gestures is controlled, or maybe guided, would be a better word here, by the nature of what the musicians themselves are experiencing in the particular physical situation they find themselves in. And it's performed by the Montpellier-based Ensemble Daedalus, and it's taken from the album Atmosphere's Transparent Opaque, which was put out on New World Records in 2018. instrumental pairing I've never come across before, and you know what? It really works. And it's actually two harps there alongside the steel pans, I guess quite possibly to accommodate the chromaticism of the piece, which can be quite difficult for a single player to achieve. The piece is Rio de las Mariposas, or River of Butterflies, and it was written in 1995 by Gabriela Ortiz, a composer and lecturer from Mexico City who studied in Paris and London before returning home. Her parents were both folk musicians, and she had an early immersion in the local and regional styles, which she then went to blend with influences such as the music of Bella Bartok, who she describes as window-opened 20th century music, who definitely changed my mind in a completely new way. She's not so well-known in Europe, I'd guess, but she's had considerable influence across Central and South America, in particular, with fans no less than the likes of Gustavo Dudamel, who describes her as one of the most talented composers in the world. She has an ability to bring colors, rhythm, and harmonies that connect with you. That is something really beautiful, something unique. And that quote really speaks in particular to this piece for me. She, along with other composers featured today, and undoubtedly many more, show that there's a vibrant and extensive contemporary music scene, both in Mexico and beyond, but there's often been a struggle for these composers and musicians to break through on the international stage. Gabrielle Ortiz has said, It's even more difficult if you're a woman and you're a Latin American, because normally in the concert music world, people look to Europe. They don't to Latin America. They don't know that in Mexico we have a very important scene of composers doing lots of things. I discussed all of this a bit in the last show in connection with the Mexican group Liminar, Well, hopefully some of these things are set to change. Anyhow, that piece was inspired by a trip Gabriela Ortiz made when she was six years old to visit a small town in the Gulf state of Veracruz with her parents, who were doing research at the time into music from the region. They rented a boat and sailed up the Papaloapan river, with her parents playing folk music with the people from Tlacotlpan along the way. And Papaloapan in the Nahuatl language means river of butterflies, hence the Spanish translation in the title. The piece just has this really dreamy ambience to it that I love, and some really beautiful harmonies, both the more diatonic rhythmic sections and the freer chromatic ones. And much as the term coloristic is one of those that can simultaneously mean everything and nothing, I can't quite help myself wheeling it out here. That was performed by the musicians of Southwest Chamber Music, and it's taken from the album Aroma Foliado, that was released on Cambria in 2013. Mexico continued. That's Metro Chabacano, written in 1988 by Xavier Alvarez, who I think is one of the most well-known composers within Mexico, but again, probably lesser known beyond, unless you're John Adams, of course, who's a fan. He said, the music of Xavier Alvarez reveals influences of popular cultures that go beyond the borders of our own time and place. And there's definitely for me a stylistic link between Metro Chabacano and breakthrough pieces of Adams, such as Short Ride in a Fast Machine. Listening through to some of Xavier Alvarez's pretty vast output, it does seem to reflect an interest in creating works that combine a variety of international styles and traditions. Quite a few of his pieces incorporate elements from Latin American dance genres, such as the Mambo for example. Metro Chabacano is a station within the vast Mexico City subway system. Xavier Alvarez has said he hears the piece like a short imaginary cyclical journey across a fleeting urban landscape. It was commissioned by visual artist Marcos Lemenez. His own work is located within the station and it's a cyclic electric ladder. Apparently suspended above the heads of passers-by and inhabited by mannequins who ride it up and down while spinning in circles The performance you heard there was by the brilliant Cuban based Camarata Romo Conducted by Zeneda Romo and it's taken from the album Danza de las Brujas, and it was released on Biz Music Cuba in 2006 So if I were to ask you the instrument or instruments involved in that, what would you say? That's Parallels, written in 1998 by Robert Wanamaker. He's a composer, improviser, instrument builder, music theorist, author, and teacher based in the California Institute of the Arts. Oh, and he's also a mathematician. He's got a PhD in that to boot. He describes his music as reflecting his interests in the physicality and perception of sound, in sonic environments, extended performance techniques, tuning systems, noise, gradual processes, and algorithmic composition. On the research side, he studied signal processing theory and psychoacoustics in particular, and he's co-authored some pioneering work into dithered quantization, no less that's gone on to be universally implemented in digital audio applications worldwide. Now, seeing as you didn't ask, quantization in digital signal processing, as opposed to music sequencing, that's something else, is the process of transferring a continuous set of variables, such as the amplitude of sound in the analog domain, to a discrete or stepped set of variables in the digital domain. And because of this transition, the digital signal is always rounded or truncated to some extent, these so-called quantization errors can result in noticeable sonic distortions known as artifacts. And that's where dithering comes in. It's the process of intentionally applying a continuous low-level distortion to the signal, which serves to randomize these errors and thus smooth out to our ears the resultant signal. It's usually applied at the final mastering stage of production. And became industry standard practice during the CD era. But I digress. Back to the instrumentation in that piece. It is in fact four electric guitars that you heard played via slide and Ebo, and specifically on the B string between the 10th and 17th frets. An ebow is that little electronic gizmo that uses a pickup in a string feedback circuit to produce string vibrations without actually touching the string which is pretty amazing, and creates the unearthly sound that you heard there. But I think beyond that, the eeriness of the piece lies in its exploitation of beat frequencies, effectively interference patterns created by notes that are almost of the same frequency, but not quite. The effect is literally a physical sense of pulsing or beating at different rates, dependent on the difference between the tones. That was performed by the Shadow Language Electric Guitar Quartet and found via Bellana 000's YouTube channel published in 2017. Confession, I am a sucker for Spanish-style guitar, and I just really like the simplicity of the flute alongside it there. That's the first movement of Sibylas, written in 2011 by Maria Granillo. Born in Torreón, Coahuila, she's a Mexican composer and professor currently based at UNAM, the National Autonomous University of Mexico. Where she arrived after stints in the UK and Canada. Her background lies in both Western classical music and Latin American folk styles. She's described her work as showing an interest in developing compositional techniques from musical poetics and sonic imagination, as well as the relationships between musical creation, natural phenomena, mythology, and human emotions. About that piece? I don't know much about it, I'm afraid. I just find it pretty transportative. Here's one more movement. the fourth movement of Sibilas, written in 2011, by Maria Guernillo. And that and the first movement were performed by Marisa Canales on flute and Juan Carlos Laguna on guitar. And it's taken from the album Kaleidoscopio, Musica de Maria Guernillo and it was released on Urtext Digital Classics in 2012. Mmm. transcendence through gloom, or just within it. That's La Luce Fluente della Divinita by Carlotta Ferrari, written in 2017. And there's just something about the main theme in that piece that stuck fast to me over these past few weeks. It just has such a directness to it. It's quite a simple piece in all, compared to the contrapuntal complexities of Bach, Vidor, and so on. But it's all the better for it. It feels like a distillation of counterpoint to its most elemental, totemic form. Anyhow, La Luce Fluente della Divinita, or the Flowing Light of Divinity, is inspired by Mechthild or Matilda of Magdeburg, a Beguine Christian medieval mystic from the 13th century. And the Beguines were a lay religious sect active in lowland Western Europe, from around the 13th to the 16th centuries, and the title of the piece is taken from Matilda of Magdeburg's writings of the same name, Das Fließende Licht der Gottheit. Carlotta Ferrari, meanwhile, currently based in Firenze, I think, is a pretty prolific composer of organ and other music. She describes her style as contemporary modal and she's quite heavily involved in researching and writing with something called the RPS Modal System in cooperation with Harvard organist and composer Carson Kuhman, who you heard playing on that recording. RPS stands for restarting pitch space, and it's a modal harmonic system that uses fragments of a scale to generate an extended pitch space for use in a composition. Basically, the material is defined by a chosen number of initial notes of a mode or scale which are then transposed again and again with the ending note of one fragment becoming the starting note for the fragment's next transposition and so on and so on up the octaves with each octave containing unique and different pitches. Carson Kuman describes it as a super mode and it is really a close relation of what are sometimes called extended scales or modes. And recently perhaps most notably developed by English jazz pop Wunderkind Jacob Collier, including his YouTube famous Super Ultra Hyper Meta Mega Lydian scale. Good luck's there. Now, that digression concluded, I don't think that piece actually uses RPS. Sorry. It sounds more conventionally modal to my ears, but damn it, it's the one of hers that I wanted to play. It's so far unreleased, save for Carlson Kuhn's performance published on his YouTube channel in 2017. That's called Mother's Sacrifice, written in 1908. It's the sole surviving composition, as far as is known anyhow, by L. Viola Kinney, the L there standing for Lady, an American composer, pianist, and teacher from Sedalia, Missouri. She studied music at Western University, a historically black college in Quindaro, Kansas, where she participated in the harmony class and choral society. And after completing her college education, she moved back to Sedalia, where she began a career as a teacher of music and English at a segregated secondary school, becoming head of the music department whilst giving recitals in Sedalia and surrounding towns and Mother's Sacrifice originally won second prize in the Interstate Literary Society original music contest held at Omaha, Nebraska in 1908, with the score being published the following year. When asked why the music composed by Western University students should be purchased, she wrote a statement giving reasons, including that, quote, white people should purchase it because they ought to see what the colored youth is doing and has done during the few years of liberty of mind as well as of body and that black Americans should quote purchase it because the composers are of their own race and their children should have such encouragement as mentioned is the only score of hers that's been found although she did register the copyrights for at least two other compositions sadly it all seems to reflect a pattern of lost works by black composers from George Bridgetower in the 18th century up to Julius Eastman in the 20th and meanwhile scores of other black composers such as Harry Lawrence Freeman, Chevalier de Saint-Georges and Shirley Graham Dubois survive as handwritten manuscripts only, usually in dire need of engraving and editing. Aside from current efforts to raise awareness of these composers, that's something that only real investment in their histories can hope to achieve. That was performed by Maria Corley on the piano. And it's taken from her album Soulscapes that was released on Albany in 2006. The Brooding Canticum Sacrum, written in 2000 by Anna Lara, a composer from Mexico City who's done stints at the Academy of Music in Warsaw and in the States. That piece was originally for a cappella voices and was later re-scored for string orchestra, I think, and it uses Gregorian chant alongside heterophony a technique in which a musical line or lines are played in slightly different versions simultaneously, giving here a slight rhythmic displacement and creating those soft blurs of melody and harmony that seem to float in and out of focus. Annalara has described the piece as being very direct harmonically. It's very simple and it's mainly about colour. I wanted to explore how through very simple things, simple rhythms, simple notes, Simple harmony, you could make a wonderful world using the orchestra. And it's such an intense and focused performance there by the Mexico City based orchestra, the Camara de Bellas Artes, directed by Jose Luis Castillo. And it's taken from the album Verso, released on Quindescent Recordings in 2018. And that just about wraps up another episode. The tonic will be back on September the 1st at 10 a.m. British summertime. As always, you can check the Tonic's Instagram page for confirmation, the underscore Tonic underscore. Thanks to Meg, Rosie, and everyone at Threads again for hosting. I'm Luke Fraser. Enjoy the summer, and thanks for listening.